Republicans to wake up. Is with the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. It's the Peter B. Collins Show. Today's sponsors, Greg Shabaria of San Francisco, Deborah Gordon, and Stephen Fine of Mill Valley. Your support keeps me going, and if you'd like to help, just log on to PeterBCollins.com. The tab on the right says you can help. And here at the Peter B. Collins Show, Russ Baker has stopped by. He's on a West Coast tour, and he is a journalist who's been writing for a long time. We met a few years back at one of the Take Back America conferences when Taking Back America was a left concept. <laughs> and he has a new website that we talked about with Sabelle Edmonds a few months ago called WhoWhatWhy.com a nonprofit journalism venture. Russ, welcome to our program. Thank you. Great to be here in person with you for a change. Well, it's great to see you, and uh, this is a secret location here, so I have to swear you to secrecy. I will not tell anyone. Because I was stalked once, and we don't want her to find me again. Uh Uh-oh. Because I'm so virulent and, you know. I can see it. The magnetism. (laughs) Amazing, really. Well, Russ, it's good to have you on the West Coast, and I just pulled up your website to uh, see what you've been uh, writing about recently. And uh, give people a a thumbnail of what you do at Who, What, Why, and what your vision is for it. Sure. Um, After 20-some years in investigative journalism, trying to do it through uh, mostly uh, for-profit-owned companies, uh, I decided that the time had come to just do the journalism unfiltered. Uh, And so we created this uh, 501c3 nonprofit uh, and uh, uh, I guess like your show, we're depending on uh, members of the public to help us get these stories out. Uh, the purpose is to do a real deep dig uh, and, and to get behind the surface issues of our time and understand the power structures that shape our world in unseen ways. That's always been a favorite theme of mine, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, the reporting that we're getting out there, which is not necessarily bad, but it's only one level. It's a kind of a superficial treatment of things. And so it's kind of like a, almost like an athletic competition. You know, here are the Democrats, here are the Republicans, here's a bill and so forth. And that kind of takes all of the, it sucks all of the oxygen out of the room, but, mm-hmm. and there's, there's sort of no, nothing left to sort of explore the deep systemic structures that that create these conditions, which I believe uh, prevent us from having a a full-blown democracy or even a a particularly effective republic. Well, I would just politely challenge a little bit of your polite description there, because I think the uh, corporate media has really failed us. And when we look back at the Pentagon Papers and the 
the risks that were taken to publish that information. And we look at the stack of, uh, of documents that I presume are out there that are available to an enterprising reporter, and there seems to be no interest. Um, uh, the most recent podcast I did was with British journalist Andy Worthington, who covers Guantanamo in great detail. He wrote the Guantanamo Files with a profile of every one of the 770-some people who've been held there. And there's no counterpart in American journalism. There's nobody who's dug into that story and said, this is, is a rich, gruesome story that needs to be told. Right. Well, this is why we exist. But to, to be fair about it, um, we do stories that the Brits won't touch because of their own libel laws. So mm-hmm. there is that element. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think if you go to whowhatwhy.com and you look, for example, uh, on the left-hand side, we have what is really sort of a blog where I and as we grow our organization, more people mm-hmm. uh, will we, blog there, kind of just commenting on things we see in the news that aren't covered, aren't covered right or are covered right but aren't receiving proper attention. But on the right-hand side of the site, you see here, this. Uh, these are our, our, our feature investigations. The top one being the game that goes on and on, mm-hmm. a Swiss bank, a president, and the permanent government. And this is a sort of an investigation into uh, last summer when Barack Obama was on, on vacation. Uh, and the, the media were all there in droves, and they covered he sort of, you know, he had an ice cream cone. The kids played. Mm-hmm. Uh, he waved. Uh, he did this. He did that. He played golf. And the thing that sort of captured me was I was looking, and he was playing golf with, uh, it was a foursome, of course. And I, so I just thought, well, let's see, you know, Know, who's in the foursome, and it was a, uh, an, a young aide and then an old friend of his, a physician from Chicago, and that makes sense. He's on vacation. And the fourth guy, some fellow named Robert Wolf, and I looked to see what his, uh, <laughs> his affiliation was, and he was the uh, head of a UBS bank in right. the United States. And I thought, UBS bank, that's, that's the outfit that was investigated uh, and forced to pay almost a billion dollars for its role in encouraging and helping Americans evade Taxes. Now, why is this significant? Just because Mark Rich wasn't there with him? Yeah, you know. <laughs> I mean, I just thought, you know, here's here's the you know the change we whatever his slogan was. I already forgot. But change we can believe in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, then then I look and I say, well, you know, I just wonder. I mean, it just seems to me, even on its face, not a great idea to be golfing with this guy. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I wonder what the coverage was. So I go and I look, and there was no coverage of that. Uh, only the New York Times even had any kind of mention of this. He he he. The reporter mentions this man and then writes, "Call it donor maintenance." Yeah. And like a, like a joke. And then he goes mm-hmm. right on to talk about something else. And I thought, this is just total abdication. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to have a look at uh, a little context on UBS Bank. And so what you see on whowhatwhy.com is, is uh, you know, a lengthy, fairly meaty story of UBS mm-hmm. Bank, its role in the world, and its ongoing influence with, Amer- uh, with American presidents of both parties. And what I get into is this kind of deeper layer where, where, where international, transnational uh, entities working with uh, American-based entities uh, and and also with associations with very disturbing figures, UBS uh, ties to uh, Ferdinand Marcos, mm-hmm. uh, dictator of the Philippines, the South African apartheid regime, uh, the Shah of Iran. I mean, you know, the, where, do, where where do people suppose that the money comes from that keeps uh, keeps life pretty good uh, for these outfits and life pretty good in Switzerland? And so. I'm very interested in these kind of perpetuations. Why is it that things never seem to change? That's mm-hmm. kind of part of the mandate of who, what, why. 
Well, and uh, a couple of things there. One is that uh, we do need to see the influences that really are common to both political parties. And you've been on Boiling Frogs. Uh, My friend Sabelle Edmonds refers to it as the deep state, Uh, the people who really run things. And uh, the whole Wall Street meltdown and the bailouts and the lack of transparency of how much money actually has been pumped in and under what conditions, the way that uh, until the recent indictments it appeared that Goldman Sachs uh, had successfully used this whole episode just to consolidate its control uh, over its own industry and its role in uh, nefarious banking deals like we've learned about in Greece, well, that- where, where they basically created the Enron strategies to help the government of Greece put huge amounts of debt off the books. That's right. By the way, these things are not new. And um, my own understanding and my own appreciation of the depth of the deep state came about in my work on my book, Family of Secrets, uh, which uh, uh, was my attempt to understand the deeper meaning of the uh, Bush dynasty uh, of where this country has gotten to. And it is really a kind of a contextualizer of where we stand now moving forward with Obama. And I really learned because in Family of Secrets, I do go into UBS Bank, which was involved with uh, helping uh, a, a group of people in this sort of wider circle with helping George W. Bush on his way uh, up, uh, trying to uh, and influencing Hillary Clinton in her inner circle. It's a sort of pervasiveness. And then you see, by the way, these out Outfits, the the banking firms, Brown Brothers, Harriman, the mm-hmm. the uh, sort of house banking firm of the Bush family, yeah. with uh, members of his firm uh, influencing and advising presidents, Democratic and Republican alike, for the last sort of 60, 70, 80 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see also all these sub-companies with, with uh, CIA connections uh, doing all these complicated maneuvers, what you're talking about, like with Greece. They were doing... I interview people in Family Secrets who tell me, oh, we were the first... Uh, our company back in the 50s when I worked with George H.W. Bush, we mm-hmm. created all these affiliates in Liechtenstein and everything and moved the money around so nobody could figure out where it was and we would never have to pay tax. And so they've been effectively do, both doing these kinds of things that have robbed the U.S. Treasury for, for decades, but they've also been permeating the White House and shaping policy in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, are you familiar with Nomi Prinz? Sure. I mean, she worked on Wall Street. She worked at Goldman Sachs. And her reporting, I think, has been stellar. Uh, about the extent of the federal money that's been pumped in or pledged. You know, it's up around $13 trillion. It's yeah. not that little piggy bank called TARP. Yeah. And they're out there. Austin Goolsby was on television last night saying, well, you know, all but $90 billion of the TARP money has been paid back. It's like, yeah, okay, that's a start. Now, where's the other $12.5 trillion? Something about Austin Goolsby, by the way. He's in the article here. Interesting fellow. I did some research on him a while back and hadn't published it. Mm-hmm. Just put a short mention in here because he's the director of this Economic Advisory Committee for Obama. Uh, another member of that Economic Advisory Committee is Robert Wolf of UBS, ah. whose bank lost more money than anybody. Why he would be seen as somebody to advise the president at all 
mm-hmm. uh, is astonishing. Not not to take away from the fact that he bundled enormous amounts of money for Obama's campaign. But uh, by the way, UBS is very interesting because uh, he was a chairman, and then the co-vice chairman uh, uh, was um, Senator, former Senator Phil Graham, oh. who was the chief economic advisor to John McCain's campaign. And so, and the guy who the, blew up the uh, the the firewall, the, exactly, uh, the, exactly, the bank. Uh, so the, the What's that? What's that called? <laughs> he, they were they were involved with getting rid of um, uh, um, uh, uh, Glass Steagall. Glass Steagall. There we go. Right, and getting rid of the separation uh, between the, the banking investment and, banks yeah. and. And 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 merchant making and so and so um, he so they had their top people in both of the campaigns and so mm-hmm. whatever happened they were going to be advisors but then you got Austin Goolsby and he's on there and then another member of this uh, committee all in this article on who what why is is is, is um, a fellow who handled the Bush family's investments uh, and who was one of the SEC Securities and Exchange Commission chairman under George W. Bush and mm-hmm. he's now another economic advisor to Obama this has not been reported I don't think at all. No, I didn't and, know that. And all of these guys, by the way, uh, uh, the SEC fellow, Donaldson, uh, and Austin Goolsby, uh, and, of course, George W. Bush and his father and son, they're all members of, I kid you not, Skull, Skull and Bones. Bones. You know, whatever you want to say about that, you can laugh about it. But, you know, they take it very seriously. And who am I to to, to laugh at something that these guys inside it take it seriously? If they take it seriously, that's all that matters because it creates a kind of an internal cohesion and a loyalty, essentially, to mm-hmm. class. Well, it's a network at minimum of people who do favors for one another yeah. and take each other's phone calls. And and we have, you know, a, an underreported equivalent out here, the Bohemian Club, which has this summer encampment in their grove up in uh, Mendocino County every uh, August. And all kinds of uh, world leaders and CEOs descend and take their clothes off and do silly things. But you know that they're bonding and that when they get back to the office, they say, hey, uh, remember that thing we were talking about? Let's go forward with that. Let's let's outsource. Let's offshore. Let's blow something up. It's a big part of sports in America. You know, uh, yachting and tennis and golf and all of these things. I mean, there's a it's not just uh, it's not just exercise anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Russ, what about the areas where it appears, pardon me, that the media is really covering? for misdeeds of the past two administrations and to the same extent the Obama administration because uh, I'm really troubled by not only the coziness with these Wall Street interests and that basically the people who wrecked the economy are the ones who've been tapped to fix it and I don't trust them Uh, but we've seen the uh, collaboration of the media in keeping embarrassing stories from surfacing from, uh, for example, Sabel has exposed this whole area of Turkey's influence buying in the United States. There's a whole gate there. <laughs> uh, there's a Pulitzer Prize yeah. for somebody who yeah. wants to open that story up. Yeah. And yet, <clears throat> you know, little tidbits pop up, um, but nobody is willing to really mm-hmm. dig in and report that story. Uh, is it going to stay this way? Or do you think that the nonprofit model... We're seeing it at ProPublica, TruthOut.org, Raw Story. I mean, there are a lot of good independent nonprofit uh, journalism sites that are web-based now. They don't have the cost Mm. of a daily print publication. But are we going to see that kind of unfettered enterprise that we really need to be a 
democracy? Well, uh, first of all, let me just say that uh, there there are a lot of organizations that are nonprofit that are journalism oriented, but they're not all reporting organizations. Quite a no- number of them are primarily distribution vehicles, and they're taking pieces uh, written by others and getting them out to an audience, which is a useful function, but not to be confused. For example, what what we're doing with who, what, why? I would go up against any of these outfits in terms of the uh, the skill, experience, contacts, sophistication, so on required to do these very complex stories, we're really kind of almost counterintuitively going uh, um, back to, you know, re, you know, manufacturing Rolls Royces. You know, we want to do hand-tooled journalism. Uh, one of the reasons I'm out here in California is to is to meet with folks, raise money so that we can build a team, because it took me many, many years to get to my level of expertise, and I want to train people. We can't do it quickly. Even within the better ranks of journalists, very few of them have this skill set, uh, the historical background, and so on, to tackle these incredibly complex subjects. So I I think it's crucial. I think it's going to take a while and it's going to require a real commitment on people's parts to say, you know, I want this information. I know how important it is and I know how labor intensive and capital intensive it is to do this. And if I don't want this stuff all funded by Frito-Lay, you know, I, I got to set up, step up and, and, and say, you know, I, I can, even if, even though I'm not wealthy, I can give $20 a month or something to help these folks do that kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. Are we going to see a real sea change here? Will the New York Times still be a dominant organ 10 years from now? You know, I, I, I'm not one to make predictions, uh, and I, I don't think you can know. Uh, I, th- I think it's interesting, by the way, that the prognosticators we watch on television, on the radio, they're actually wrong most of the time, but because there's no uh, uh, no sort of uh, you know truth committee on scorekeeper. that, no, no accountability, <laughs> no scorekeeper, they just move right on. But I will say this. My feeling is that there will still be a New York Times, because I think, generally speaking, even though they don't get into a lot of these things, what they do get into, they do is serviceable job. The people mm-hmm. who work there are professional. Uh, they, they, they are personally, individually committed to getting the story. And so I think that we do need these kind of broad-based, large staff organizations. Again, they're not. I think they're not going to be able to do too many of the sorts of stories we want to do. I hope mm-hmm. that we'll be able to sort of kind of coexist with both the, you know, the sort of the New York Times and then the kind of, you know, nation magazines and the, and the journals of opinion uh, where we all sort of play somewhat different roles and provide this sort of, um, you know, variegated media landscape. Uh, but I think you need that. And I think you need these local uh, publications that are starting up this uh, what it's called the bay citizen or something mm, that's bay, right that's you know, funded by warren hellman he yeah. put up five million dollars yeah, to start yeah. a nonprofit uh, local site and it's it's partly in response to the cutbacks uh in beat reporting uh conducted by local newspapers our venerable uh san francisco chronicle <clears throat> pardon me owned by the hearst corporation uh, has made huge cutbacks in its reporting staff in the past year. They threatened a year ago to uh, close the paper. Yeah. Uh, they tried to sell it. Nobody bought it. And they, they say their fortunes have improved. Uh, they used that opportunity to dump the printer's union and uh, a couple of other inconvenient labor contracts that they had. And uh, so it, it remains to be seen how that will work, but there's, there's no doubt a real gap uh, somebody, I, I think a laid-off newspaper reporter, did a calculation just that if the average beat reporter generated five stories a week, and then you count how many reporters have been laid off, 
there is a way to enumerate how many stories simply were not covered. Or there was a substitute used where a press release was sent and somebody rewrote it. Or a wire story came in and they, you know, cut half of it and printed it. Uh, But there are a lot of stories that are simply not being covered at all because there aren't people out there turning over rocks and making phone calls and going to talk to their sources and saying, what's new? Yeah. And so we need all of these, uh, you know, we may a million flowers bloom because we, we urgently need this. And, and so I'm hoping that enough of the old media landscape will survive. They'll respond also to this sort of perceived competition and they're all going to have to get better. Um, and, and I think they're, you know, they're looking over their shoulders. So, so I, I think this is a good period for us. Mm-hmm. I really do. I, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not happy about the collapse of media as we've known it because there was, there were certain services being provided that are crucial to the citizenry. But, uh, but I think that out of it may come some very, very good things. Mm-hmm. Well, Russ, it's great to see you. Whowhatwhy.com is the website, and your book is available, Family of Secrets. Uh, you have a recommended outlet, Amazon? You know, or I, you know of course, I like to they... encourage people to go to independent booksellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the biggies are the ones that seem to really have it, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Borders. But, uh, you know, g- go to your local here in the Bay Area. I know that uh, City Lights g- carries it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, um, uh, you know, Books, Inc. and some of these other local uh, people have it. Um, um, I think uh, book passages, I saw it at the airport, mm-hmm. uh, Compass Books, uh, and so forth. And so, uh, you know, try to support those folks if you can. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a very good point, and I appreciate that. Got to keep them in business, too. Russ Baker, thanks for joining us today. And the Peter B. Collins Show rolls on via podcast. We're sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer for you. And your purchases from the Organic Wine Company help support the Peter B. Collins Show. We get a small commission from each sale. I never realized what a rock dog Robert Dreyfus is. His recent story in The Nation magazine leads off with a reference to this part of this famous song by San Francisco's Jefferson Airplane. question is, does Alice know Hamid Karzai, our puppet leader in Afghanistan? Robert Dreyfus, welcome back to the Peter B. Collins Show. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. I, I left the mushroom part out of the story, though. I realize that, and I think it should be updated to reflect opium poppies. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, that's, that's um, very, very possible, and it would be appropriate. But in this case, it had more to do with the fact of... The, the pawn that we put into power nine years ago suddenly, you know, flexing his biceps and telling the U.S. where to go. And uh, it, it's, I, I, it's almost like a, a, a new reality show, you know, when puppets attack. <laughs> it, um, 
starring Al Maliki and uh, Karzai. Yeah, it, it, wasn't there some... That that show about Chucky wasn't a puppet, right? He was a doll of some kind. But there was, there was some murderous puppet um, that came to life and attacked its owners or something. Mm-hmm. Right. I, so, I, I'm drawing a blank there. I won't be able to give you a lifeline, Bob. Yeah, well, anyway, but that's that's pretty much... I mean, look, this is very important stuff. I mean, the, you have people, people like Peter Galbraith and a lot of other people, you know, questioning Karzai's emotional health and mental stability and accusing him of taking drugs, literally, is what Galbraith said. And you have mm-hmm. a lot of U.S. officials disparaging him and, and you know, uh, and, and so forth. But he basically said... Um, and all this came after, you know, a few days after meeting with Obama, who right. apparently gave him a finger-wagging lecture about what he should do and not do. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he accused the U.S. basically of being, you know, acting like an invader and occupier. And he said we could, we could turn the, the battle there into a, a legitimate national resistance. And he said, if you keep pushing me, I may join the Taliban. Um, and, 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 and the important stuff that he said, besides all that, Mm-hmm. is that he accused the United States of trying to undermine his approaches to reach out and establish contacts and eventually a, a settlement with the Taliban. Right, and I, is, I think that's very significant. Now, let, let me, uh, if you would, uh, hmm. take this uh, piece by piece. First, I want to properly introduce you. Robert Dreyfus is a contributing editor at The Nation. He publishes uh, frequently in the blog section of The Nation under the Dreyfus Report. And he's working on an uh, article on Hamid Karzai that will be appearing in a, an upcoming edition of Rolling Stone magazine. Now, Bob, um, I, I think uh, I do agree with you that uh, these are very important issues and that uh, the U.S. has a very uneasy relationship with Karzai. That's been very public most recently. And even before Obama made his uh, stealthy uh, Sunday trip to Afghanistan to meet personally with Karzai... Uh, the relationship was badly uh, eroded. And uh, let's start off with the uh, the fraudulent election that re-anointed Karzai last year. Uh, that occurred in late August, and then there was a, a runoff that was aborted uh, in late October or early November. Uh, widespread uh, reports of massive fraud. And Galbraith, who you mentioned, uh, is, is an American who was assigned there uh, uh, with the United Nations, and because he spoke up publicly about the fraudulent election, uh, he was uh, dismissed and and recalled. And uh, most recently, even after the events that you've described, uh, Karzai went on a rant uh, that really was presented as quite unhinged in the American media regarding the election process last year. And he uh, blamed Galbraith and uh, outside sources for the fraud aspects of the election. Now, that's a little rich, and that does seem to uh, uh, at least uh, give some rationale to this unhinged uh, uh, frame that we're seeing about Karzai in the American media. Well, I don't, I don't agree at all with that. I, I think Karzai is far from unhinged. Now, he may make some charges that, you know wouldn't stand up to the, the scrutiny of fact-checkers at PolitiFact. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, uh, he's trying to cloak himself in the garb of uh, Afghan nationalism, which is increasingly reflecting an unhappiness with the American occupation over there. Um, we keep blowing up wedding parties and 
killing innocents. We were about to launch a massive assault on Kandahar, which is the Taliban's uh, birthplace and hometown, a mm-hmm. city of two million people. Um, we we recently blew up a bus of civilians. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is constant, you know, stuff, and and mm-hmm. and and we're tromping all over um, the independence and and integrity and uh, of, of Afghanistan. So I think what Karzai is doing makes perfect sense. He's he's trying to you know get out in front of this bus before it, it runs him over, and and it's true that he tolerates corruption. It's true that he has made deals with a lot of warlords to keep himself in power. Uh, it's true uh, that he committed fraud in the election. But, I mean, let's get real here. I mean, there are leaders all over the third world, including, by the way, in Pakistan, who are more corrupt and, and probably, you know, more dangerous than he is. Yeah. So the, the important stuff that he's doing is he announced in London in January that he wants to make a deal with the Taliban and not the low-level fighters that the U.S. wants to peel off one by one, what they call reintegration, mm-hmm. but a much more different, all-encompassing strategy called reconciliation. Um, he said he's willing to meet with them. In fact, he did have negotiations. He's having a big jirga or tribal council in a few weeks to discuss all this with all the different components of Afghan society. Um, he has he passed a law, an amnesty law, that, that um, basically forgives crimes committed before 2001, which, you know, is partly aimed at the Taliban to encourage them to, you know, feel like they're not going to be thrown in jail if they step forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's taken five members of the Taliban off the U.N., Banned list, the so-called list 1267, that lists 142 members of the Taliban, um, and he wants to take a lot more uh, off that list to, to the great horror of Richard Holbrook, who, who expressed shock over the idea. So he's taking a lot of steps to reach out and try to make a deal with the Taliban, and the United States is undermining him at every step of the way. So I think we ought to step back and let him try to make this accommodation if he can, and stop getting in the way. Um, he was against the Marja offensive, which took place in February against this uh, village of 60,000 people, the, the big conquering heroes. You know, we went in there to occupy a, a little town. Mm-hmm. And, and now he's apparently against the, the Kandahar offensive, too. He, he went down there during this period of his outburst in the beginning of the month and said, um, uh, if you guys, you know, meaning the tribal elders, don't want this to happen, it won't happen. And so, uh, now that doesn't mean we can't roll over him. I mean, we've kind of summoned him to Washington on May 12th, and I'm sure he'll get both of his arms twisted. After all, he's pretty dependent on the United States for his, you know, oxygen. Yeah. So, um, but still in all, I think what he's doing is is significant and important, and it shows a widening gap between the government of the United States, which has vastly different interests over there than he does, and the government of Afghanistan, which is really in a whole other place. Now, a quick question, a little off topic. You mentioned uh, his oxygen source is the United States. Do we still provide his security with contractors like Blackwater? Do you know? Um, I, you know, I can't. 
I don't, I don't know. I mm-hmm. mean... I know we been, did for a while, and I, well, I don't know if that's still the case. It's, it's possible. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not one of these people who thinks that, you know, contractors in Blackwater are the, the devil. I mean, they're an adjunct to the U.S. military, and, you know, if we're using them, I guess somebody thinks they're better than using something else. But, I mean, we have spent <clears throat> billions of dollars trying to build up his army and his police force, and we do have uh, what will soon be... Uh, about a hundred thousand troops in his country. So mm-hmm. no, I'm not going. I mean, I'm not going Scahill on you, Bob. <laughs> yeah, no, but I'm, I mean, <laughs> my my we, question is: Does he depend on us for his daily security? Because well, of it, it we're also propping up his entire government, and mm-hmm. we're funding his entire government. Mm-hmm. So I mean, both financially and militarily, he's dependent on the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's recently been reaching out. He he made an important visit to China which is investing a lot of money in Afghanistan all of a sudden. Right. Uh, he visited Iran, and then he invited Ahmadinejad to uh, Afghanistan. Um, so he's looking for allies other than uh, the United States, or at least you know, raising questions about whether he could find allies elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, and, the, the American media played the Ahmadinejad visit as a kind of uh, payback uh, of Karzai trying to send a message to Washington. Do you see that? No, I don't see. I, I think Afghanistan has, you know, Iran has a huge stake in Afghanistan. They have a big presence there. They have a, they're putting a lot of money and other support into western Afghanistan around the town of Herat and among Afghanistan. Afghanistan Shia population, which is significant, the Hazaras in particular. And uh, Iran and India and Russia were the three main supporters of the Northern Alliance. And Karzai has to court the Northern Alliance if he wants a deal with the Taliban. He has to get the support of the anti-Taliban coalition that, you know, exists in that country mm-hmm. to say, look, if, we, if I make a deal with the Taliban, I'm not going to sell you guys out. And so he's got to get India on board, he's got to get Iran on board, he's got to get the Russians on board. And, and all three of these countries are very suspicious, in fact, you know, bitter enemies of the Taliban. Yet, um, earlier this month, we heard reports from India that they're planning to uh, open up uh, separate direct talks with the Taliban. That is, the, the government of India wants to talk to the Taliban. So... I think all of this connects with what Karzai is trying to do. Um, I don't think he's so stupid as to invite Ahmadinejad just to send a message to the United States. He needs Iran's support for a deal. So uh, you quote um, Mike Mullen, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, describing Karzai's meetings here trying to develop a peace process as premature. Yeah. So uh, despite the fact that Obama talked a year ago... Uh, about how this couldn't be won militarily, that he wanted to reverse the uh, uh, ratio of funding from 80% military to 80% nation-building and, uh, you know, a peace process. That hasn't occurred uh, with the increase in U.S. troop levels. Uh, that doesn't send a message that we're looking for a political settlement. So is your perception presently, Bob, that the Obama administration, with the review that was uh, conducted very visibly last fall and the president's December 1 speech at West Point, uh, have they abandoned the more conciliatory approach that Obama had originally outlined 
uh, as, as recently as a year ago. No, I don't think so, but it's complicated. I mean, when Obama announced his escalation of forces last December uh, at the December 1st West Point speech, he said, in addition, that we would start withdrawing troops from Afghanistan in July of 2011. Right. Now, that was generally seen as a kind of a Solomon-like way, you know, of cutting the baby in half, that I'm going to increase troops, but I'm also setting a, a timetable. And among other things, it, it you know, puts McChrystal, the general over there, on a deadline. You've got to show me some results or, you know, by the end of this year, or we're going to start, you know, yanking forces out of there. Now, um, this 2011 deadline is very significant. And it's true that Obama could change his mind or, you know, reduce it to meaninglessness by saying, yeah, I'm going to take, you know, 500 tired soldiers out or something. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, though, it could be the opposite. It could be something very significant. And I think that's the point that a lot of people over there are focusing. And I'll tell you, when you talk to the Pakistanis, the Indians, the Afghans, the Iranians, uh, they all say that they're all taking that deadline very seriously, and they're kind of maneuvering to get their ducks in a row. Um, the, the, the peace talks that uh, you mentioned before that Admiral Mullen said were premature, um, uh, the Hekmatyar group, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who was one of the pro-Taliban or Taliban allies based in Pakistan, sent a delegation to Kabul in March. And they sat down and talked peace with Karzai and, and delivered a 15-point peace plan that was predicated on a withdrawal of U.S. forces. And even though they said, we want this withdrawal to start, you know, immediately, um, they also said that they were specifically inspired by Obama's July 2011 deadline. And they said, you know, look, our timetable is flexible. So what Obama has done, in fact, is to open up the door for talks about what that deadline could mean. And that could be significant. Now, the, the problem is that the United States has a different philosophy than Karzai. The United States' view is, first, we have to bloody the Taliban and reverse the momentum and, you know, knock them around a little bit, and then they'll be willing to come to the bargaining table. And Karzai's view, and the British view, by the way, and also that of the United Nations, is the opposite, that the time to talk is now. Mm -hmm. That why aren't we extending feelers to the Taliban now and trying to get a political settlement? And, uh, by the way, tying that to a, a timetable for the withdrawal of of the NATO forces. And so, you know, this is all kind of a big chess game that's going on here. And I, I think Obama is caught politically at home between conservatives and the military and others who are pressing him to, you know, be Mr. Tough Guy over there. And the his Democratic constituency who, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, elected him to end these two wars. And so... Um, the problem is, if he sticks around past next July, um, he's going to lose a huge amount of support among Democrats and and liberals and other independents and so on, who who will, you know, start to be, I think, vocally disappointed in in Obama. I, I think they were already beginning to move in that direction, and I think he bought himself some time by talking about this July 11 deadline. 
Bob, you make an important point in your article I'd just like to quote briefly. Pakistan, of course, created the Taliban in the 1990s as a cat's paw for extending influence in Afghanistan. And since then, the Pakistani Army and Intelligence Service, the ISI, have maintained not-so-covert ties to the Taliban. They continue to see the organization as a potential ally, even though they've arrested some key leaders recently as a result of U.S. pressure. Now, this is a very important point, the linkage of Pakistan to the Taliban. And uh, one of the things I I don't think is mentioned in your article is that we did capture a Pakistani Taliban leader who was participating uh, covertly. Apparently, the U.S. either wasn't uh, in... Uh, aware of this or turned a blind eye, but uh, this was a key leader who we arrested, I believe, in February. Yeah, uh, it was Mullah Baradar was his name. Thank you. And he was the number two official in the Taliban, a member of their leadership council and also their top military commander. Mm-hmm. And he was engaged in uh, behind-the-scenes peace talks, both with the United Nations and with Karzai, with um, uh, Kai Ada, who was the head of the U.N. office there at the time, mm-hmm. and with Karzai's people. In fact, um, apparently some of his, his representatives met with Karzai. Um, and uh, all of a sudden in February, he was busted by the Pakistanis and the CIA. Now, it's an open question in my mind whether the CIA did this on purpose to undermine these talks. I mean, certainly they have an interest in arresting Taliban people anywhere they can find them. On the other hand, I have no doubt that Pakistan did it deliberately uh, as a message to Karzai saying, if you want to talk to the Taliban, Mr. Karzai, you've got to come through us, buddy. And, and they were short-circuiting the talks, and that's exactly what the head of the U.N. said. He said, you know, we were, we were talking to this guy, and the Pakistanis arrested him, and the whole thing shut down. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you have, you know, Pakistan being very aggressive about asserting its national interest in Afghanistan, and they're not going to, um, you know, fold their cards and go away just because we want them to. Um, and you have India doing the same thing. The Indians, um, I was speaking with some Indian diplomats who suggested to me that they would love to see Karzai talk to the Taliban, but they don't want it to be under the control of Pakistan, because India and Pakistan, as you know, are are bitter enemies mm-hmm. and have fought several wars over the many decades. And so, um, in fact, you know, India basically dismembered Pakistan in the 1970s when Bangladesh was created. And so there's a, there's a proxy fight going on in Afghanistan between uh, Pakistan and India, and that's really at the core of the whole fight over there. It's a, a civil war in which Pakistan and India are on opposite sides, and we're caught in the middle. And Bob, from the point of view of the U.S. as an occupying force in Afghanistan, it's hard to read right now because we would presume that after uh, eight years of military presence there that we're looking for a way out and that we would like to see peace talks proceed. Yet, what you described as this uh, force of uh, both political and military interests in Washington, pushing to try to diminish the Taliban before such talks could take place, 
kind of uh, shows either a desire to maintain the occupation or some sort of, of ignorance or misunderstanding of the complexities on the ground and what Karzai faces in trying to end hostilities and bring some sort of peaceful structure to Afghanistan after more than 30 years of, of ongoing either occupation or internal conflict. Yeah. So I, I have trouble sorting this out because it would seem that the, the, the Berater uh, 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 capture in particular is an effort uh, by the U.S. and perhaps uh, uh, in agreement with Pakistan to prolong the U.S. military presence there. Well, you know, I think our presence there has more to do with domestic politics back in the United States than it has to do with any um, clever understanding of what we're trying to do in Afghanistan. I think we're kind of flailing around over there. And there's not a lot of evidence that we know what we're doing, um, except that um, somebody in the White House and in, in Congress and so on, they all seem to think that we need to win some sort of, you know, victory or defeat the Taliban or something. I don't know. So um, whether that's possible or whether we're seeking a face-saving you know, I mean, a lot of people think that this Kandahar offensive is all for show, that we're going to go in there guns blazing, and then we're going to announce a big victory in the Taliban heartland, and then we'll say we've finally done it, and we'll pack up and start going home. I mean, there's a, you know, I don't know. I think, it, I think it's mostly about domestic politics in the United States, unfortunately, and that's, you know... <laughs> Kind of sad if you're an Afghan. Yeah, and Bob, that notion is is somewhat supported by the PR campaign about Marja, because uh, this was not a battle royale, uh, and in you know according to most accounts I've seen, uh, the Taliban is uh, is quite predictable melted away, and, yeah, and they're back. And by the way, right? And they they melted away, and then they they, they melted back. And and so uh, if Kandahar is just a larger replay of that, it's kind of the the summer games, if if we can put it that way. Uh, what is the outcome that we're hoping for? Just a, a PR victory on American television? Uh, because uh, I, I think you and I probably agree that uh, the insurgencies, which are not limited to the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, will continue and will fight and attempt to consolidate. Uh, whenever we leave, whether it's uh, in 2011 or 2021. Right. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's it. And so, all right, bail me out here. What, what, what is the next process here? Uh, do we just sit back and watch and hope that we don't lose too many American lives in this exercise in Kandahar? Uh, is there any meaningful oversight of these activities, for example, in Congress that will uh, affect no, this? I don't think Congress has much interest in, you know, getting into this game. I mean, they have their own, you know, agenda this year, and very little of it has to do with Afghanistan. I, no, I think, you know, it's, everyone's got a different motive. There, there's, there's certainly people who think that Kandahar could be a great victory. And I think there are other people who think... We can declare victory and get out, and there are people in between. You know, we could have done that in 2011 after we, you know, 
battered al-Qaeda and knocked the Taliban out of the driver's seat over there, that only took about two months or so, um, we could have then declared victory and pulled out. You know, and we said, oh, we accomplished, you know, we accomplished our objectives and we're going to still hunt bin Laden down to the ends of the earth and left. Mm-hmm. But, um, but we didn't. We got into the nation-building business. And um, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, my guess is that Obama is smarter than that. I think he doesn't believe in this, you know, 10-year nation-building plan that you hear a lot of people talk about. Um, and I think he would like to run for re-election uh, in 2012, saying, uh, I, you, I inherited an economic catastrophe and two wars, and I fixed all three of them, you know. And uh, so I think he'd like to be able to say two years from now that we've pulled out of Iraq, we have no more forces there, and we're getting out of Afghanistan. Now, he's got a lot of people who, you know, would hate it to death if he said that. And, and a lot of them are in the military and in the Republican Party and some hawkish Democrats and other kinds of people. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Mm-hmm. And it's also notable that there isn't much of a, uh, a popular concern about Afghanistan among uh, even the liberal base of uh, Obama's party. Uh, there's it, it, it seems that people are quite passive uh, and disconnected from what's going on there. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, I don't think Congress wants to get too much involved. I mean, there's there are people who speak out, of course, and there's an anti-war caucus in the House, and there's, the, you know, the same people who fought it during the Bush period, um, you know, are, are engaged once again. Um, but... Um, I think, you know, I wouldn't blame Congress so much. I don't see a great popular opposition to the war. Um, I think Obama has managed to mute that, and so Congress is reflecting that to some degree. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob, before you go, I'd like to uh, get your thoughts on the current situation uh, with Iran. At the uh, Loose Nukes Summit in Washington, the president took the opportunity to uh, once again uh, try to build uh, support among other nations for increased sanctions uh, against Iran. And uh, the reports indicate that, uh, you know, Iran is pretty clearly working to develop a nuclear weapon. I, I don't have severe doubts about that. Uh, but it, it seems that we are backing away from a direct confrontation and that we're trying to encourage Israel uh, to do the same. Well, uh, the chances of us going to war against Iran are, are zero. Uh, they've been zero now for several years. Um, well, let me, let me, think, if I, I may, let me... The Israelis are going to attack Iran without our permission, which they will not get until hell freezes over. So let me let me just quote from I think your Iran is safe from from military attack. The question is, you know, what else are we going to do about it? And I, I'd submit the answer is nothing. We're going to let them get a bomb if that's what they want, um, because we don't really have any, you know, arrows in the quiver that can can stop them. Mm-hmm. And there was a report that we had dispatched uh, planes with bunker busters to Diego Garcia. I think that surfaced about a month ago. Uh, is that significant? No. 
no, we're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, our military is uniformly against uh, attacking Iran. And, um, I, I mean, that, as you know, they plan contingencies for, uh, for everything. Um, so I'm sure we have, you know, military plans to invade Saskatchewan somewhere in the <laughs> Pentagon shelves. But, um, no, I mean, I think that the issue is, um, you know, we're, we're trying, we're going through the motion of sanctions to show that we don't like Iran, but everybody knows it's a, it's a shadow play. Everybody knows that sanctions are not going to have a real impact on Iran's decision-making. So uh, why, why is Obama wasting political capital, particularly with China, uh, to try to get them to embrace further sanctions? Uh, because I, I, I agree with your, your point here. I don't think we're going to attack. I don't think that they are rattling sabers in the same manner that Dick Cheney did, but they seem to, we, we hear all options on the table, and, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton has been speaking up quite a bit, Secretary of State, uh, calling for increased pressure on Iran. And, uh, I, you know, it, it seems to me to be a waste of, of that political capital. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, but, um, you know, I mean, we there's a whole process to this. I mean, Obama opened the door for negotiations with Iran, and it didn't go very well last year. Um, I mean, I was critical of some of what he did because I think he should have, you know, done more to acknowledge Iran's right to have a nuclear energy program. But um, nevertheless, when the talks fell apart, you know, he started shifting to the pressure game. But I think the Chinese and the United States both know what game is being played here. And so I'm not sure we're exerting a huge amount of political capital, you know, vis-a-vis China. I mean, it's like when Obama meets with the Dalai Lama, you know, the Chinese make their protests and Obama shakes his hand and then we move on to business. So, I mean, I think our relations with China are probably okay. And, and, um, uh, as I said, this is all kind of a diplomatic shadow play that's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I wanted to quote just your uh, sentences here from your blog very clearly here about attacking Iran. Don't worry about it. Ain't going to happen. Not a chance. Zero, zilch, nada. Um, that's pretty clear, Bob. Well, I was kind of paraphrasing uh, uh, Admiral Mullen, too, who, who said that in slightly more um, formal-sounding words in a speech uh, up in New York uh, over the weekend, but yeah, it's not. It's not. I'm not too worried about that one. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob, it's always great to talk with you and mix it up with you. I appreciate your comments today, and I encourage people to read your piece uh, coming up in Rolling Stone. And the article we've been talking about related to Harmed Karzai is uh, available on the website at thenation.com. Great to talk to you, Bob. Thanks so much. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Drop me an email with your comments, Peter at PeterBCollins.com Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then My pleasure, Peter. Thank you.